Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world, and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know and what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room. So listen, pretty lady, tell us all about it. We have a fabulous chat room, a great group of people, and I say that every time. It would be greater if you were out there, too. So that's everyone out there. Do come join us um, in the chat room. We share ideas. We share a few jokes. We discuss what is... Um, what's being discussed on the air so it brings a whole new dimension to it and occasionally the guest uh, pops into the chat room too and answers some questions um, you can come in and join you can just watch what we're doing as i said you can put questions up in there as well for the guests so do come join us that's provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat all right in this week's spotlight i'd like to turn your thoughts for a moment to consciousness when you think of consciousness, what comes to your mind? Do you consider the notion of who you are as a part of your consciousness? I mean, if your memories were erased and synthetic memories took their place and your personality changed as a result, how would this impact your consciousness, your sense of self? Now, if consciousness to you is about who you are, then you should know that Many of the new nano-neurotechnologies potentially threaten that. Indeed, in the Journal of Life Sciences and Policy, the authors of a new study suggest that the freedom of mind is at risk. Marcello Ianca, lead author and Ph.D. student at the Institute for Biomedical Ethics at the University of Basel, said, quote, The mind is considered to be the last refuge of personal freedom and self-determination. But advances in neural engineering, brain imaging, and neurotechnology put the freedom of mind at risk. Science fiction can teach us a lot about the potential threat of technology. Neurotechnology featured in famous stories has in some cases already become a reality, while others are inching ever closer or exist as military and commercial prototypes. We need to be prepared to deal with the impact of these technologies and how they will affect our personal freedom. Close quote. Now, the authors of this study suggest that we need four new laws. The right to cognitive liberty, the right to mental privacy, the right to mental integrity, and the right to psychological continuity. The fact is, neurotechnology has already been used in courts and will no doubt be used in many more creative ways in the future. Decidedly, in the near future, using neurotechnology to identify the propensity toward criminality will probably gain traction as a preventive measure to protect society. So how far might we go? Now, if consciousness is more about the quintessential nature of life, then about individual identity, then you should be aware of this new work as well. Suppose you think of consciousness from a spiritual perspective. Consciousness for most, then, is the stuff that we believe somehow survives the death of the physical body. However, what are we to think if we learn, as some physicists are beginning to argue, that consciousness is merely a matter of the organization of atoms? In an article titled, This Physicist Says Consciousness Could Be a New State of Matter, Max Tegmark from MIT insists just this. He proposes that consciousness can be interpreted as a mathematical pattern, the result of a particular set of mathematical conditions. 
just as there are certain conditions under which various states of matter, such as steam, water, and ice, can arise, so too can various forms of consciousness. If consciousness turns out to be a pattern of organization, then our so-called artificial consciousness may one day become indistinguishable from that of our own. For already, scientists have attempted to explain how human consciousness could be transferred into an artificial body. That's not a joke. There's a startup company out there that wants to do exactly this. And the company's CEO, Joss Bocanegro, says his team will resurrect their first human within 30 years. Think about a future where human minds, personal consciousness, are engineered and recreated by neural technology, where intelligence consciousness is fabricated in machines, robots, cyborgs, and clones. Now, what are your thoughts on consciousness? If you've read my book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will, none of this should be suits too awful surprising to you. Nonetheless, it's disturbing. We seek to push the envelope in this show and provoke thinking. This one definitely has me thinking. How about you? Ravinder, what are your thoughts? Oh, well, there's a big one. There, I mean, you know, it wasn't that long ago that whole front-end piece of yours was just science fiction. It's like, you know, I'm kind of amazed. But, you know, it is good to talk about it now because although for lots of people it's still science fiction, it is so much closer than we ever thought, you know. It is going that direction, so we need to think about it and the ramifications to it. We need to be... Maybe you missed a part of that front end. Part of the You process. know, it's, it's not at all science fiction. Prototypes exist. I know. Military I did hear that. It just, it just sounds We're too amazing for me. We're engineering thinking now. Uh, we're removing memories, uh, treating PTSD uh, by replacing those... Uh, this technology is happening right now. I know. I've got to spend some time uh, processing all of that. Because, yeah, it is going on, but it is still just so incredible to me. that you know. But it is important to think about that much, I will definitely say. We need to think about this stuff. We need to be part of the process so that we can design what the future looks like to us rather than have it overtake us. So... I think the real question to me is, listen, if it turns out that you can fabricate consciousness because you've derived the pattern of atoms, as Ted Mark suggests, there's a great TED Talk out there if anybody's interested, uh, with some illustrations and, and the math behind it. If it turns out you can do that, that means that you know we, we can't just clone a human being. We could actually just create the consciousness we want in some kind of cyborg. You know, we we just pattern a consciousness. You know, maybe maybe even we pattern a consciousness of a genius like Einstein. You know, uh, or I don't know whatever else. But all of a sudden, the spiritual side of the notion of consciousness surviving gets called into question. You know, it's it's that question of cloning. If you're cloning a human being, does it have a soul? If you're creating intelligence, does that intelligence survive uh, shutting down the machine? Um, that's to me that is uh, you know that will keep me busy for some time. Or me hiding. <laughs> okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Leslie Keene, and we discussed evidence for life beyond death. For those of you interested, I have conducted more than two dozen interviews with experts that offer evidence-based information describing the afterlife. If you'd like to review this evidence, just visit my website, eldontaylor.com. That's E-L-D-O-N, eldontaylor.com. Drop to the bottom of the page, and you'll see life beyond death, beyond a reasonable doubt. Just click on that link and... You're there, and you can you can review all of the interviews, hours and hours of interviews with physicians that have uh, you know, witnessed uh, the impossible, uh, scientists uh, who have measured everything from the so-called weight of the soul to it, it's an incredible number of hours of uh, of really, I, to me, it's an inspirational. When you're all said and done going through, that's kind of hard not to accept. Uh, 
the idea of the afterlife. All right, John wrote, I love shows about the afterlife. Please do more. CB commented, is a materialized hand considered a near-life experience? That's cute, CB. Cute. Near-life. What do you think of that, Rife? Yeah. <laughs> Leslie, Leslie provided this uh, comment in our chat room regarding fingerprints, a question advanced by the chat room. Uh, from the wax gloves that were made during the materialization of uh, an entity's hand. Quote, the fingers of the molds do show markings like fingerprints, and there are other mediums studied in which fingerprints were taken by materialized hands. Close quote. Andrew wrote, I absolutely loved your guest, Leslie Keene. Her journalistic approach is refreshing amongst a background that is often full of fraud. Moving on, Richard wrote, I'm listening to the radio show now. Your opening lines evoked a thought. The opening line that I'm talking about, you say the show, is for the open-minded. My experience tells me you can't much ask people to be open-minded or creative. It just doesn't work well. To the contrary, defenses and performance anxieties arise. There is a prescription that seems, from research and some experience, an achievable real first step to become an open to new thinking. The call to engage in the willingness to question one's own assumptions. It is the willingness to experience doubt and uncertainty that is the hallmark of the creative, the opening of the door. I wonder then if it would be more effective in opening people's minds to advertise the show as one of those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, willing to be uncertain for an hour. Challenge people to doubt their assumptions. Well, I think that's a great suggestion, Richard. And I hope you noted that I did, in fact, make some adjustments today. Thanks for the input. Uh, we'll, we'll work with this one. Ravinder still prefers the open-minded. But no, we'll... I changed my mind as I heard it again. No, I definitely really like the willing to question. If you think about it, how many times have I said on the air, you have to think about what you're thinking and think it through again and decide why you're thinking the way that you're thinking. And that can sound really complex and convoluted and silly, but I think it's very true. Okay, there you are, Richard. Another thumbs up. All right, Lisa wrote, I love your work. I've used your meditations and intertalk programs since you were with Gateways, and as a therapist, recommend your products to clients frequently. Thank you for what you do. Finally, Mike wrote, your book, Choices and Illusions, is destined to go down in history as one of the great books of all times. It will be a classic 100 years from now. Thank you for your tremendous contribution to the understanding of the world. Well, thank you, Mike. I am very honored by your words, sir. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon, E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Now to this week's show, Dancing on a Stamp, Stamp, I'll get that said, with Garnett Schulhauser. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Garnett Schulhauser is a retired attorney. After practicing corporate law for over 30 years in Calgary with two blue-chip law firms, he retired in 2008. In his first book, Dancing on a Step, Stamp? I don't know why I want to say Step. <laughs> Dancing on a Step? Look at that. Stamp. Garnet recounts how his life changed dramatically one day when he was confronted on the street by a homeless man named Albert, who was actually a wise spirit in disguise, an emissary from the spirit world. This seemingly chance encounter launched a provocative dialogue with Albert, who disclosed startling new truths about the cycle of reincarnation on Earth and the afterlife that awaits us. His second book, Dancing Forever with Spirit, describes his next encounter with Albert, who guided him on a series of astral adventures to visit the spirit side, the Akashic Records, distant planets with fascinating life forms, and, humans, and a human civilization that made the shift to the new earth and his third book, Dancing, Dance of Heavenly Bliss. He continues the saga of his astral trips with Albert, who takes him to meet Gaia, the consciousness of Mother Earth, two of Earth's mythical creatures, a Sasquatch and an Irish fairy, who live in fear of humans and human civilization on another planet that is ruled by women. Okay. We certainly have plenty to talk about now. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Garnett Schulhauser. 
Hi, Eldon. Thank you for having me. It's indeed my pleasure, sir. Looking forward to speaking to you. We like to know three things on this show, if we may. Who's the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to begin, please tell us a little bit about your youth. And were you raised religious? Did you, I mean, did you have a predisposition towards encountering any spiritual entities, et cetera, and so forth? I was raised in a very strict Roman Catholic family, Eldon in Saskatchewan, um, and I was, uh, we, were, we went to seemingly go to church all the time. Um, my mother was very religious. I served as an altar boy, and that was my upbringing. Uh, I remember all the teachings that the Catholic Church told me, and I sort of had no choice but to sign on to them when I was a child. But when I reached my teens and my, my 20s, I started to have a lot of doubts about what the Catholic Church had taught me, uh, and so I started slowly analyzing their, their beliefs and rejecting them one by one. So then I was sort of in no man's land, and I was casting about for a new paradigm to latch onto. Um, and I constantly asked myself the eternal questions of, that everyone gets to sooner or later, like, who am I? What's my purpose? Uh, you know, what happens to me when I die? That kind of thing. And then, so I wasn't predisposed to having a, uh, an encounter with my spirit guide. In fact, I didn't even know I had a spirit guide um, until I encountered the homeless man on the street uh, that, that fateful day in Calgary. Well, you know, tell us all about that. I mean, a homeless man, um, you know, this beggar. Um, how did you meet him? And when did you come to understand that he wasn't just a homeless guy? Uh, he was a genuine, you know, uh, spirit guide and, and not somebody there to deceive you. And that this wasn't just some psychological predisposition that, you had abandoned your faith, and yet you needed the answers, and you were retired and coming to the age where we seek, as Maslow said, self-actualization. You know, flesh that out for us, please, Garnet. Sure. Well, what happened, I was still practicing law then, Eldon, in 2007, and I was walking down the street in my uh, blue pinstripe suit, uh, looking very much like a, a stuffed shirt corporate lawyer, which I was, <laughs> um, and uh, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, uh, uh, homeless man jumps up in front of me and i had encountered these homeless men on the street many times before and they're always panhandling for money my usual tactic was to do a quick sidestep and go around them and i because I, I couldn't give them the time of day um but there was something different about this man he had these amazing dazzling blue eyes um and that they were doing sort of two things at the same time first of all his gaze seemed to be penetrating deep within me right down to the depths of my soul and i felt like he knew everything about me everything i'd ever said or done he even knew my deepest and darkest secrets. And this was strange because I'd never met this man before. But I didn't feel violated because at the same time, his gaze was sending me this wave of pure, unconditional love that was infusing my whole body with an amazing sense of peace and security and well-being. It was an amazing feeling. I've never felt like that before. So I stood there like a deer caught in the headlights. And then after some time, I don't know how long I stood there, he finally broke the spell by saying to me, Why are you here? And then he quickly disappeared into a nearby store. Well, after a few seconds, when I finally collected my wits, I decided I'd better go find this man and find out who he was. So I went into the store he had disappeared into. Uh, he was nowhere to be seen. I walked up and down, but he just wasn't there. So I went back in the street, walked up and down for several blocks, hoping to spot him. But he had seemingly disappeared into thin air. So I slowly walked back to my office, my head sort of in a, in a swirl, wondering what had happened. I resolved to come back the next day to try to find him which I did, same street, same time the next day. I walked up and down for about 15 minutes. I was about to give up hope when I spotted him sitting all alone on the bench. So I went up to him and I said, who are you and why did you stop me the other day? And he said, I'm a soul just like you. I'm here to answer your questions and help you on your journey. But then my skeptical lawyer brain kicked in. And I said, why do you think you can help me? You look like you've been sleeping on the street for weeks and you smell like a dead fish. <laughs> well, he just gave me a big smile, and he said, you know, looks can be deceiving, because you look like you're a successful lawyer with everything under control, but we both know that's just a facade. So if you want, you can turn around and head back to your office and see if you can find all the answers you've been seeking all these years in all those emails waiting for you on your computer, or you can sit down and have a chat with me. So luckily, my intuition kicked in, and I said to myself, well, what have I got to lose? I, I can... Half an hour of my day, I better sit down and find out more about this guy. So I sat down on the bench beside him, and I began a dialogue with him that went off and on for the next several months. And I found out early on, he said his name was Albert, 
and he was actually one of my spirit guides in disguise. So that was the beginning of the my encounter with Albert, and, and the very first part of that, the dialogue, resulted in my first book, Dancing on a Stamp. I have to ask you, Garnett, um, did you ever see Albert in a disincarnate way? I mean, as just spirit, or was he always physical in the flesh? And and, and did you shake his hand, uh, pat him on the back, give him a hug, or, you know, have any kind of physical um, touch of him when he was car- uh, appearing, at least, as a corporal being? Yes, I did touch him. I did. He felt solid. I did touch him, touch him on the shoulder, shook his hand. He was very, uh, very solid. He appeared to me in physical form just for our first three meetings of Eldon, and after that, he was just a voice in my head, and he would just speak to me telepathically, and he wouldn't appear in front of me. And he told me, actually, that I was the only person who could see him in physical form. And had somebody been walking by the, the, the bench that day, they would have seen me sitting on the bench by myself, talking to myself, because nobody else could see him. So that he was actually physical for the first three times. Then he was just a, a telepathic voice. Uh, that spoke to me in my head. Okay, now, now we're going to get to this because, I mean, he discussed life plans with you and you discussed those in your books. Uh, um, but did you have some life connection with him in a prior life? Uh, or was, I mean, this this is just an unknown, totally non-associated um, situation where this spirit says, I'm going to go help uh, Garnet. No, it was all pre-planned. Albert told me that that uh, before I, I incarnated, he was incorporated into my life plan. Um, he was I, I recruited him to be one of my spirit guides. We'd actually had a number of different lives on Earth together before, so we were quite familiar. We were sort of in the same soul group, and so before I incarnated here, I recruited him to be one of my guides. This this encounter was all pre-planned. Of course, once I was born, I don't remember what's in my life plan, so it was all a big surprise to me. But Albert said, "Oh yeah, now we planned all this and." Uh, and luckily, you carried through because even though it was in my life plan, because I have free will like everyone else, I could have just walked away from him that day and not had a conversation. And, but, but they were betting on the fact that, that I would have the conversation and that we would sort of uh, continue our, uh, our encounters and I would write my books as he wanted me to. So it was all pre-planned, but I didn't remember any of it. Well, okay, in that scheme, I suppose it was pre-planned. You'd be on Provocative Enlightenment today, and I would ask you a few tough questions. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> All right, sir. Listen, you know, one of the things that I think draws a lot of attention right off the bat is your discussion about sex taboos. So what did Albert tell you about sex taboos? Well, they, they, most, of them, most of the conversation originated from the sex taboos, if you will, that the Catholic Church imposed on us. You know, like, to them, it was like, uh, you know, most of sexual encounters are sinful except very limited between a man and a woman who are married for the purpose of, of, of procreating and conceiving a child. And everything else is just sort of taboo. Uh, and uh, so I asked Albert about that. He said, you know, uh, that's all nonsense. He said, um, there's nothing, there, there are, first of all, there's no sins on earth. I mean, there's nothing that you can do on earth that's wrong in terms of the source, because it doesn't make rules what the Catholic Church told you, and certainly there's nothing wrong with sex, whether it be, you know, between married people or, you know, uh, people who aren't married, uh, between homosexuals and other gay people. There's nothing wrong with that, and, and it's all perfectly healthy. And, and you know, uh, he said, you know, if, if God didn't want you to have uh, sexual activities, he wouldn't you know, have given you sort of a strong sex drive and hormones to make you want to do these things. That's all just part of being a human. And so it's all very natural. And so all the, the, the sexual taboos that the religions teach you is just uh, just nonsense. It's a, just a way of controlling people. So fornicate as you please, wherever you want. Is that the message, Garnet? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, you know, he doesn't have any, yeah, as long as it's consenting, as long as it's not rape. Uh, yeah, go ahead and do it. He says there's, no, there's nothing wrong. There's no, there's no, you know, like marriage is just a, a man-made institution. Uh, you know, uh, it's it, it, contract for right? humans. Sorry, I say a contract, right? An instrument of the of the law. That's yes, what marriage exactly. is, right? But 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 humans aren't naturally monogamous. This is just imposed by society and religions way back when, and carried forward, and that's where we are now. And and but you know, his view he says the source doesn't make rules, so you're not breaking any of the sources or God's rules by fornicating. Um, you know, that's just a natural part of being a human. 
We're definitely going to get provocative here real quick. We've got a heartbreak <laughs> coming up, Garnet. Uh, I can't wait to proceed in learning more about God doesn't make rules. All those rules that we deal with are man-made, right? And uh, all right, we're speaking with Garnet Schulhauser about his remarkable experiences and his three books, beginning with Dancing on a Stamp. You're going to want to look at these. They're they're great reads. They're challenging, uh, and and they're definitely entertaining. They are worth reading. You can learn more about our guest and his work by visiting his website at dancingonastamp.com. One word, dancingonastamp.com. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room featuring Garnett explaining his meetings with luminaries, including Jesus, reviewing the Akashic Records, and much more, all as he is discussed in his newest book, Dance with Heavenly Bliss. So if you're not in the chat room already, now's the time to get on over there, and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to InnerTalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Mr. Garnett Schulhauser about his remarkable experiences and three books detailing these experiences, beginning with Dancing on a Stamp. You can learn more about our guest and his work by visiting his website at dancingonastamp.com. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology, you now know, is not just a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, but a new 
um, area of interest to me. Indeed, we're compiling quite a bit of information, not just on our guests and the music they choose, but on the influence of music overall. So, we just played some of Sounds of Silence by Simon and Garfunkel. Tell us, Garnet, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are? It's important to me because it's been one of my favorite songs since my very early days, and I listen to it quite frequently all the way through. And it's interesting, when you're playing it now, I got goosebumps all over my skin because it was it's such a, I'm not sure why it's so meaningful to me, but it's a very powerful message, and uh I really like the sound of it. It just, I, it, it, there's probably something more to it that I don't re- realize. Uh, there may be some uh, past life connection to uh, the guys who were who were, who were and Garfunkel. I'm not sure, but there is some connection there, and it just makes uh, it makes. As I said, I got, I got goosebumps listening to it now. How old were you when you first heard that music? I'm just curious. You know, I don't recall how old I was. Teenager. Um, uh, no, well, okay, I'm uh, I'm not sure, I can't remember when it came out. I'm 66, so uh, it was sort of like, uh, 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 when did that, I don't even know when it came out, but it's... it's so it, so you, would have been a, you would have been a teen, okay, I just, yeah. you know, there, a lot of the research tends to tell us that the most important music to us comes from those teenage years, typically 14 to 17, so I'm just kind of curious there. Uh, again, this is an avocation of mine. But, all right, listen, one of the reasons... You got to this show, because we usually just bring in the hard science, is because of your credibility, an attorney, your background, your education. You knew, therefore, how much risk you were going to when you decided that you were going to advance the story of Albert and these visits to other planets and Sasquatch and things that you know, some people just shake their heads at. How has that impacted your life, taking that step, Garnet, and why did you do it? Well, uh, I, I struggled with the decision after I'd written the manuscript for Dancing on a Stamp, and I didn't really talk to any, anybody other than my wife and my two sons about having met Albert, so I didn't really, nobody else knew about it. And when I wrote the manuscript for it, I had a, a, a you know, second thought about, gee, you know, maybe I should just throw it in the drawer and, and, and keep it in the dark forever because I knew that there would be adverse reaction from my former law partners and clients and, and, and other friends, uh, because yeah. it was totally 180 degrees from the Garnet Schuhalter they knew as a lawyer. And so I knew that there would be a skepticism. People would roll their eyes. Some people would shun me. Um, after a while, I just said, well, the heck with it, I have to do this. And so I did, and it set me off on a new path. And, yes, I've lost some of those guys. Some of my former partners and, uh, and the clients uh, don't talk to me. They sort of shun me. But I know they're thinking that, Old Garnet has gone, uh, um, has lost his mind. He's suffering from dementia, uh, you know. But that's that's fine. I mean, those people, I knew they would fall by the wayside, and I don't really care. But I've met a lot of very interesting people since I've taken this new path, who are spiritually enlightened and and who appreciate what I would have written. And so, so overall, it's been a positive experience. And the people who don't, who think I've gone crazy, you know, when they die and go to the spirit side, they'll find out that I was really telling the truth. You know, I mean. I have appeared as an expert witness in more than one occasion. And for years, I was a practicing criminalist. So I know firsthand how attorneys are going to approach you from whichever side you're not the witness for. And, and you know, for all I, I can remember, I was heiress of the ancient hermetic order of Asclepius for a while. And at a time when I was testifying in a trial, what a big deal that was. What, what is he? Now, who is this? And is that some kind of new age? And I, I can't imagine what they do to you as an expert witness if, if they just simply referenced your book. So I guess I want our audience to understand just how much risk you went to when you decided to publish this material. Uh, and, 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 I, and the courage that it takes to put it out there. So, okay, enough said. No rules, Garnet. No rules. Does that mean pedophilia is all right? Yeah, well, no, no, no rules coming from the source, or as some people refer to as God. Uh, the, the source does not make rules for us to follow here, despite what all the organized religions tell us. The, the, all the rules we have from the religions are man-made rules, by, you know, put out there by religious holy men who want to use them to control the masses, control the people. Albert says the source doesn't make rules and doesn't, about, and doesn't manipulate the events on Earth. There is no 
There's no manipulation. There's no guy in a, in a throne in the sky with the, pulling the puppet strings and making things happen or not happen on Earth. Source doesn't get involved. There's, things happen based upon what humans do and using their free will, um, and there's no rules to be breached. So no matter what you do, which really means that the bad guys go to the spirit side the same as the good guys like you at Eldon. So, so let me just say, you know, of course, you know, coming from my background now, I guess I've got to uh, play devil's advocate for sure. Uh, you know, we look at morality and, and we say basically one of the things that makes humans different than the rest of the animal kingdom is we have these moral principles. And, um, you know, in psychology, we watch small children and we see how quickly they adapt rules and how they can see unfairness um taking place and identify it and and so there seems to be some you know more than a tabula rasa when it comes to morality we tend to seem to have some innate wiring in that direction is our are our rules a result of our morality or or now i know that you mentioned the contrivances of religion organized religion but now i'm talking about some form of ethical conduct. Is there no such thing as a measure for ethical conduct from the source's perspective? Well, not from the source's perspective, but we do have rules and, and guidelines that our souls want us to follow when we're here. And we don't always remember all those guidelines, but that's where that sort of that innate sense of morality comes from. It's really our soul saying, no, don't, uh, don't stab that person, don't kill that person, because that's wrong. And so that comes through loud and clear for most of us. For other people, they ignore it and they end up uh, becoming murderers and terrorists and so on. But, but there isn't that innate sense that comes from our souls. So the source doesn't make rules for us to follow. We make rules ourselves as souls before we incarnate, and we hope that we can carry through on those when we're born, even though we don't sort of remember the whole process beforehand. So, yes, there is an innate morality comes from our souls, um, uh, who, who have a desire to sort of act in, a, in what we call a, a good and honorable fashion here, a kind fashion on, on this planet. But then uh, that doesn't always work because our human mind will often sort of overrule that, ignore it, and carry on and do all the bad things that happen in our world. So that's where the, the negative stuff comes from. So, okay, then for all intent and purposes, the only judge uh, or jury to our life is going to be ourselves on the other side? Absolutely. When, when, when you leave your physical body, you go to the spirit side, and, and one of the first things you do is have a life review where you go back over every aspect of the life you've just lived, and you look at what you've done, the good things, the bad things. Uh, it's a learning tool, and yes, you're the only one who judges what you've done. Uh, the, God doesn't judge you. No one else judges you. Uh, you don't get any marks for your life. You just sort of look at it yourself and say, okay, I wish I would have done this differently and that differently, and it's a learning experience, and you use that as a tool to plan your next life. So you judge yourself. Uh, but 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 not in a harsh way. You judge it in in a, in a learning sense. Okay. Now this is material that I've seen many many times, written, you know, well, I don't know, probably in books that are 100, 200 years old. So you you keep mentioning free will, you know, and there's a great disagreement in science today about the notion of free will. And in fact, some very respected scientists believe free will is, and quote, a grand illusion. Others view free will in a somewhat provisional way in that, look, MRI studies, fMRI studies show us that there's activity in the unconscious telling the conscious what to do, sometimes seven and ten seconds in advance. So a technician watching the brain make a choice knows what you're going to decide seven seconds, six seconds before you know what you're going to decide. What's Albert say about free will? Well, free will is a very important part of our journey on Earth. It's one of the most challenging aspects, Eldon, because uh, that's what, uh, you know, you know we, we make life plans before we were born. Once we're here, we're not allowed to remember what's in them. So then we have to go through life sort of uh, blindly stumbling about, trying to find our way, trying to find our path and, and what we're supposed to be doing. And we have free will. So our life plans are et don't etch our life in stone uh, because our free will could come along and just do something totally different. And, and we often go off course that we plan, sometimes in a major sense, and we let our negative emotions go out of control. And that's why we have so much bad stuff going on. It, um, it, it, it's, it's really one of the big factors we have as, as humans is, uh, is uh, exercising our free will in a way that conforms to the plans we had before we, uh, before we were born, which is a really okay, difficult but, thing. But my point then would be it would appear that 
this free will seems to arise from the unconscious, like a program that's running a script. Uh, it's just, you know, we, we don't know what we're going to decide until the unconscious tells us what we're going to decide. Um, is, is that part of a life plan? I mean, are we instilling information in the unconscious, or is that just a nature-nurture, environmental conditioning, and da-da-da-da-da uh, effect as a result of all the input that we get during our lifetimes? Well, we're dealing with the human brain here, which is a very sort of, a, in terms of your total consciousness, I mean, our, our souls have huge consciousness on the spirit side. We're very limited here dealing with the human brain. But where we do get a, a lot of input is from our spirit guides. Uh, like everyone has two or three or more spirit guides. I, I have my spirit guide, Albert, but most of the time for people, spirit guides don't appear in front of them as in, in physical form or have direct telepathic contact. So your, your spirit guides are constantly sending you messages in very subtle ways like, flashes of intuition and whispers in your mind and coincidental events and so on. So you get input from your guides all the time, except you don't really uh, don't really understand, for most of us, where it's coming from, or we don't hear it and we're not, because we're not listening carefully enough. So we do get input from them. But our human minds, uh, pardon the pun, have a mind of their own, and so they will often just ignore that because they would rather do something else and they'd rather do a course of action that seems to suit them in terms of their life on this planet, which is often contrary to what they planned beforehand. So, uh, so we do get input from our spirit guides all the time. We get input from our souls. We're trying to tell our human mind what to do, but our human mind doesn't always listen. Okay, let's, let's deal with a real controversial idea in New Age. You know, it comes down to the notion of life plan and plans. There are those that insist that evil um, is the result of a, a Two people agreeing on the other side, look, you come down here and be the bad guy, and you can teach me this. And so, you know, someone like Hitler, well, he wasn't really evil. He's not a bad guy at all. He was just carrying out his life plan. Um, you know, there's two, two problems that arise with that, in my mind. The first one is reconciling it directly uh, with some of the atrociousness that we have seen in the world. Um, not just Hitler, but it, 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 the Pakistani man who cuts the ears and nose off of his new bride, 14 years of age, because she failed to please him. Just some of the dis contemptible, disgusting things that go on. But the second one is this. If there's no bad guys, no evil, what is criminal justice about? What are we getting all excited about? I mean, you know, these folks are all just good people. How do you square that, uh, or how does Albert square it uh, uh, for you? Well, well, Albert says that there's that there's two there's two uh, reasons for bad things to happen on our planet. One of them is is that sometimes bad things are pre-planned in our life plan. So that, for example, if I'm a soul who had just finished a life where I uh, abused my children, um, I may say to you, or your soul on the other side, you know, can you? Uh, I'm planning my new life. I want to. I want to feel the other end of being abused. So will you come back uh, as my father and abuse me as a child, so I get to feel what it's like to have the shoe on the other foot? So sometimes the bad things are planned, but more often the bad things result from uh, free will uh, allowing somebody's negative emotions to get out of control. So that it's not planned. It just happens when somebody sort of spins out of control and murders somebody or, or plants a terrorist bomb or whatever. And so it happens in two different ways, and, and you never know when it happens which way, whether it was planned or unplanned. Okay, it, but there's a paradox here, and the, and the paradox arises out of the idea that um, we have this ethical value system that you and I discussed, and, and it gives rise to a moral fiber or fabric that uh, guides us in how we direct our lives, and and yet, you know, uh, what we're really saying is, well, we suspend that very often uh, in order to learn uh, how to be moral, uh, more moral. Uh, I mean, the argument is, okay, you injured this person in their lifetime by, you know, um, cutting their hand off. So in the next lifetime, you come in and you don't have a hand. And now you know what it's like not to have a hand. Um, that kind of of uh, argument or, or compensation that we hear uh, spoken about so much in this school of thought 
seems to give rise to the suspension of the very value system that we supposedly are hardwired to carry, this ethical system. Have I got that right, or am I just all wet here, Garnet? Well, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I think in a, in a specific situation where some fool on the other side agrees to be play the bad guy for one particular scene, it doesn't govern his whole his or her whole life. Like it'll be for that specific thing which which was planned beforehand. And in the rest of that person's life, they have to be guided by their their uh, their their moral uh, uh, intuition coming from their soul. So it happens. Uh, so uh, because you plan some, some some bad event before you come here, it doesn't mean that you have to do that the whole part of your life, because that's just one small part of it. So it, it, it sort of happens both ways. What do you think about our criminal justice system, then? I mean... Well, well, well I think that we have to... I mean, because the source doesn't make rules doesn't mean that humans can't make rules, and it's good for humans to make rules, to have an orderly society of you know, peace, order, and good government, to keep the society whole. And so that's why we have secular rules. We have the criminal justice rules. We have the, uh, all the other rules. We have everything down to municipal bylaws. But that philo- doesn't, that ph- doesn't that philosophy, I don't mean to cut you off, but doesn't that philosophy contribute ultimately to the notion of cultural relativism? We create our rules here, they create their rules there, whatever works for that culture. Is that what you're espousing? No, I'm saying, I'm saying that secular rules or even religious rules that sort of uh, keep society whole and happy and peaceful, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. That's just part of, of, of human nature. Uh, it, but it doesn't mean, so w- when I say there's no rules, I meant the source doesn't make rules, but humans make rules, and you better follow those rules, because if you don't, you might end up in jail. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's just part of, of keeping uh, keeping the peace in the land. Um, okay, so, so I guess I'm going, you know, are you morally offended if you see an honor killing of some teenage girl because she exposed herself in some way that... Uh, uh, is outside the scope of what those people happen to believe, but their culture believes it, and it's normal and ordinary and practiced regularly. Are you morally offended by that? I certainly am. Personally, I am, and I think it's just wrong. I think it's wrong for the, for them to do that, wrong in sort of a, a human sense, um, and, and I think it's just a case of those people being ra- – I mean, it, it, some people might say that I was brainwashed as a child by the Roman Catholic Church, uh, is, you know, the, the, that may be so, theirs is, such, uh, is, is much more extreme, but I think it's up for people to become spiritually aware, people who follow that religion to wake up and say, hey, this is just wrong, it doesn't feel right, we shouldn't do this, no matter what our religious leaders tell us, it's just wrong, and we need to have those people sort of wake up just like I woke up uh, from, my, uh, from my upbringing and realize that a lot of the things I was taught just don't make any sense. Boy, do I concur with that. Well, okay, so you don't subscribe to cultural relativity per se. Uh, now, here's the real conundrum. There's no evil, but you met Lucifer. What's that all about? Well, yeah, I mean, I was surprised because uh, I met Lucifer, and when Albert told me I was going to meet him, I said, well, how can that be, Albert? You've already told me Satan does not exist. There is no hell. It's all just a fiction of, of the various religions. And he said, well, come, I'll show you. So I met Lucifer, who's actually a very a benevolent angel. He was one of the, uh, w- one of the great angels whose, uh, whose job it was to sort of help things out on earth. Um, so he wasn't the prince of, uh, of evil. He, he, you know, he, he's not a fallen angel. He was actually a very wise and, and, and beautiful soul whose job it was, inter- interestingly enough, was 180 degrees from what humans have, uh, some humans have misaligned him uh, over the ages as being the bad guy. He was actually a good guy. Uh, his job on earth was to try to prevent people from carrying out evil deeds, and he did that sort of through subtle messages and so on, and, he, and, and that's his job, so it's really quite different. And he's been badly maligned by some religious people over the centuries, uh, but he's not the devil. He's actually a very good, benevolent angel. So Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. Who was he talking to? <laughs> you know, you have I mean, to, you, you met you the man. Say, yeah, I know. He, yeah, I know. You, you have to sort of take that with a grain of salt because Jesus knew Jesus was a master, and he knew, of course, there is no devil. But he had to speak to the masses in a way that they would understand it, in a, in a way that would would sort of hit home to them. And so that's why he did speak about Satan, even though he knew Satan did not exist. It was a way of sort of putting some fear into the, the, the those people and 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 trying to turn them around. And of course, the Christian Church and uh, has carried that forward. You know, also today with the idea that the devil is a bad guy, and if you're and if you're not good, the devil will get you and, and take you away to hell when you die. So that's all just part of the continuation of that. So 
Jesus knew there's no Satan, but he wanted to, you know, put the fear of the Lord, if you will, into those people to make them sort of pay attention to what he was saying. Who did he cast out of the swine? That's just a story <laughs> to Garnet. I, I, again, you know, Jesus spoke in allegories, you know, and he spoke yeah. in a way that people would understand it. That's good. You can't, just, you can't take him literally. I'm just teasing with you. Okay, listen. Yeah. We've got about one minute, and I want you to tell everybody uh, how they can learn more about you, where they can get your books. Um, if you've got speaking engagements or something come out, give us a plug. Okay, well, best information about me is on my website, dancingonastamp.com. Uh, there's information on all my books. You can download a free excerpt. You can watch a book video. Uh, you can dial into my social media sites like Facebook and uh, YouTube and so on. Uh, there's buy links on my website where you can dial in immediately to Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and so on to buy my books. And you can listen to the recordings of all my radio shows that I've done uh, since the launch of my first book. And this album is show number 123 for me. Well, that's great. You're well-practiced, I tell you that. You've, you've, you've dealt with the hard ones, haven't you? Garnet, yeah. it's been my pleasure to visit with you. I thank you for your work and for your willingness to share it with us so candidly. And honestly, despite the fact I've got dozens of more questions and I didn't get the chance to ask you about Sasquatch, maybe we'll do that another time. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.